My prayer this morning, Father, is a simple one, that you would give me a heart for your word and a word for our hearts. Amen. Well, several people have said it in several different languages, but Happy New Year. Welcome to 2022. I remember when I was a little boy thinking, the year 2000, I'll be 40 years old. Oh my goodness, will we ever get there? Well, now we know we're all on the other side of 2000 and most of us are on the other side of 40 and we've made it, 2022. And I don't know about you, but I'm sort of hoping it's better than 2021 and certainly better than 2020. So Irma Bombeck once wrote a, a, an article on New Year's resolutions and here's some of hers. She said, I will never go to a doctor whose plants have died. She said, I am going to follow my husband's suggestion and put a little excitement into my life by living within the budget. She said, I'm going to apply for a hardship scholarship to Weight Watchers. And she said her last New Year's resolution that year was she will never loan her car to anyone to whom she has given birth. Now, Ed McManus, who used to write jokes for, uh, I believe, The Tonight Show, said, you can make all the New Year's resolutions you want because you only have to deal with them until February and then you could give them up for Lent. <laughs> now, Dr. Les Parrott uh, tells about a guy in Fredericksburg, Virginia, named Cliff Shatherwaite. I hope I said it right, Cliff, wherever you are. And on New Year's Eve, he sets up a table and you could write your regrets on a piece of paper and put them in a jar and he lights them on fire so you take none of your regrets into the new year. Wouldn't that be great if you could actually put your regrets on a piece of paper and pff, light them on fire for the new year? Well, I'm not going to ask if you made New Year's resolutions and I'm going to ask that you not ask me if I made New Year's resolutions. And I, I like being married to Vicki because she doesn't make them for me. You've met those couples, right? <laughs> You're doing this in the new year. She didn't do that for me, so we'll keep them to ourselves. But I challenge you to make a resolution this year, and it's the one contained in John 1.12. To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God. I want you to think about that. Because there's good children, and there's not so good children. I don't know about you, but I used to tell my kids... I care how you act when I can see you. I care more about how you act when you think I can't see you. And some of us act like very good children on Sunday mornings between 11 and 12. But after we go home and for the rest of the week, our Heavenly Father might not be as proud of us as we think he should be. Now, today's sermon is actually near and dear to my heart, and let me tell you why. When I was a young man, on my way to seminary, I, I promised myself that I was going to dive into the biblical languages. And if we've ever talked about my education, my uh, master's divinity has an emphasis in biblical languages, which is guaranteed to make any of my close personal family roll their eyes in the back of their head. They don't want to hear any more about the Greek and the Hebrew, but today... I'm sorry to say, you're going to hear about the Greek and the Hebrew. Why? Because John was a first century Jew. 
Now, you may say, well, we all know that, Doc. Of course we do. But why is that important? Well, John, like all the other little first century Jewish boys, went down to the synagogue and he learned to read the Torah. And he learned it in Hebrew. But Hebrew was already a dead language at that time. People did not speak Hebrew. The lingua franca, the, the uh, language of the people of the entire world, was Greek. And about 200 years before Jesus was born, the Greeks had translated the entire Hebrew Bible into Greek. It was called the Septuagint. They got 70 scholars together, Sept being 70, right? And they decided on the most appropriate translation of the Hebrew into the Greek so that all the world could understand the Hebrew Bible. Think of it this way. Raise your hand if when you were a little child, you memorized verses in King James. That should be almost all of us, right? The these, the thous, the therefores, the haths, the begats. We learned it that way. And then the newer Bibles came out. Well, I want you to think of the King James for John's ear as the Septuagint. He had that first century understanding of learning the dead language of Hebrew, but his ears really perked up when he heard the Greek. So what does it mean? Let's go look at, and I'm sorry, this is going to be a Greek lesson. You're going to do a lot of writing if you're taking notes. So he says, to as many as received him. The first word we're going to look at is elabon, E-A-L-A-B-O-N. And it means to take by the hand, to put on like a coat, to seize or to carry. Now, remember, these biblical languages use the same word for many things like we do. But I want you to get that image, to take by the hand, to put on, to seize and to carry. To as many as received him made Jesus a part of their life. Not just the words that came out of their mouth, not just what they did on Sunday morning or Saturday morning or whatever morning they went to church, but they put it on like a coat, they seized it and they carried it with them. To them he gave the power. Now, that word, and you've heard this one before, is ekousia, E-X-O-U-S-I-A, and that's the power of choice the authority, or the promise. To as many as put him on like a garment, he gave the power, the opportunity, the opportunity to choose to be a child of God. See, we're not Calvinists. Not that we don't like Calvinists. Maybe we eat dinner with Calvinists on occasion. But uh, one of my best stories is I was at a Christian Endeavor retreat and the guy running it was a Presbyterian, and I'm a good Methodist. And one of my cute little girls, I'll never forget, Cheryl came up and she said, Dr. Madison, what is the difference between a Presbyterian and a Methodist? And I said, well, the Presbyterians had to come, and we choose to be here. <laughs> and to her credit, cute little nine-year-old Cheryl said, okay, and off she went, right? But we believe that part of this relationship with Jesus is a choice. And he says, you have the power to choose. Now, when I was a child, the verse said, the power to become the sons of God. I have to tell you, the word is technia, and it is a generic term 
for children. It doesn't mean sons. Now, the reason they translated it sons in the King James was because you remember back in the day, a son had more of a right in inheritance and is a member of the family than did a daughter. But it really should be translated children. Now, what does that mean? What it means for us today is this. Your average person in the pew does not know enough about Jesus to be able to answer the question WWJD. I want you to think about that. The average person in the pew does not know enough about Jesus to wear the bracelet that says, what would Jesus do? And John, before he writes the gospel about Jesus, puts these 18 verses to make sure that we are on the same page, that we know beyond a shadow of a doubt about whom this book is written, why this book is written, and why it's important for us to not only read it, but make it part of our lives. So, we're going to start with your memory. Here we go. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, word and the word was, and don't go any further. Now, remember how the Greeks got those 70 scholars together to translate the Hebrew into Greek? Our friend King James got scholars together, and they were equally as concerned about the core of the message as the poetry of the message. So what it actually says in the Greek is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. And if that doesn't give you Holy Spirit goosebumps, you're in the wrong place. Because all those discussions about was Jesus God, it is now totally eliminated by the actual verbiage in the Greek. I'm going to chase a rabbit here. When the Jehovah's Witnesses knock on my door, and they say, if we were to show you something that you've never seen before, would it change your mind? I say, sure, if you make the same promise. Sure, they say, come on in. Let me get my Greek New Testament. And I show them right where it says... God was the word. And they start scrabbling through their Bible. That's not what mine says. I said, I know, it's a poor translation. But look at what the Greek actually says. To the point where in the last place I lived, the pastor of the Jehovah's Witness Church knocked on my door and asked me to stop talking to his people. He said, would you please? I said, tell them to stop knocking. But if they knock on my door, we're going to make them a pot of coffee and we're going to show them what the word says. God was the word. So there are four parts to this sermon. The first one is this. Jesus was preeminent. Now, here's the problem. We had the nativity, we had the advent wreath, we, we sang with the shepherds, silent night, joy to the world. And we have in our minds that Jesus came late onto the scene as a little baby. What does John say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. They were inseparable. Jesus was part of creation all the way back to before Genesis 1-1, which it says, in the beginning... God. That's why they wrote it that way, so it would resonate 
with the beginning of Scripture. Jesus was preeminent. I want you to hold that in your heart. Before the beginning of the world, before the stars were put into place, before all of this existed, Jesus was preeminent. He was in the beginning with God. That's verse 2. Now, verse 3 says, All things through him came into being. All things. All things through him. The second part of this message is Jesus is all-powerful. Now, he set aside that power to come live with us on earth, to be our Savior. But part of being powerful is being able to set aside your power. I can't tell you how many times a conductor has said to me, wow, that's a powerful voice you have there, Madison. Can you blend? I'm like, I went to Westminster Choir College. It's got choir right in the name of the college. Yes, I can blend. I can set aside the power and the point of the voice to get along with the other singers around me. Now, we call it comically contrapuntal courtesy, right? The tenor part is not the most important part, and I am not going to blast so that the others can't hear it. Jesus experienced contrapuntal spirituality. He said, okay, I am going to work in a way that sets my power aside so that I can relate to the people that I've come to save. He was preeminent before the beginning of time and all powerful. Now, the next part is in verse 4 and 5, and we talk about the light and the darkness, and the light came and shone in the darkness, and the darkness perceived it not. Well, the light was promised. It was promised all the way back in Genesis. There, there are resonant factors between the beginning of the Hebrew Bible and the beginning of John's Gospel in this. Remember when God cursed the serpent and he said, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. From the beginning of time, we were told that the light was coming. And what does John tell us? The light is here. He was promised, preeminent, powerful, promised, and I love this next part, personal. Now we're jumping all the way to verse 14, and the Greek word, and I, I see some of you taking notes, the Greek word is eskinosin. I know it's a word that you all have memorized, but I'll help you remember. Eskinosin is translated dwelt, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the Septuagint, it's the same word for tabernacle. Well, now you got to whip out your Old Testament brain and say, okay, what do we know about the tabernacle? Well, the tabernacle was right in the middle of the Israeli camp. When the, when the pillar of fire at night and the cloud during the day led them and stopped, the first thing they did was set up the tabernacle. Who lives in the tabernacle? God lives in the tabernacle. We're told that he filled it with the Shekinah glory of God, that it was like smoke and the people had to leave because the presence of God was so strong in the tabernacle. And then there was a list of how all the tribes 
would put their camp around the tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled with us. The presence, the power, the preeminence, and the promise of God landed right in the middle of this world and said, I want to live with you. It's the center of their life. It's the center of their heart. And then he says, and we beheld his glory, his doxa glory. Those who knew Jesus saw all of these things together. Now, I hope that this is spinning your wheels, right? When did we see the glory of God? We saw it on the Mount of Transfiguration. When we de- did we see the preeminence of God? When Jesus said, I and the Father are one. When did we see the power of God? When he stood up in a boat because he was annoyed with the disciples for waking him up out of a deep sleep. And he said, peace, be still. And I don't think he said, peace, be still. I think he took a deep operatic breath and he said peace and it wasn't directed at the wind it was directed at those annoying people who woke him up do you really think god would send me down here to save the world and let me drown in a boat (laughs) jesus got annoyed with the disciples we know that and then there's one more i want you to think about this how well do you know jesus If you haven't made a resolution this year or you're still making them because it's only the 2nd of January, why don't you make this the year that you get to know Jesus as well as you possibly can? Learn everything you can about his life. Memorize his words. Imitate his actions. Live by his example. Make a resolution to receive him. Remember? to put on, to hold, to carry, to seize. Receive Jesus. Respond to Jesus. Rejoice in Jesus. Now, I don't know if you know, but the phrase, what would Jesus do, actually comes from a classic Christian book called In His Steps. It's one of my favorite. There are about seven books I make it a point to read every year other than the Bible, and one of them is In His Steps. And a myth... um, um, not mythological, but you know what I mean, a fictional pastor challenges his church to make that pledge for a year and to ask themselves, if Jesus were living in me, and he is, what would Jesus do? Most of us do not have that complete picture of Jesus as preeminent, powerful, promised, and personal. Most of us choose one or two that makes us feel good. Uh, I am not often in the habit of quoting Will Farrell movies, but in The Legend of Ricky Bobby, they go to say grace, right? And they discuss which Jesus they like to pray to at grace. One says, well, I like to pray to little baby Jesus. And one says, I like to pray to the risen Jesus. and And no, we pray to Jesus. You don't get to pick Which person of Jesus speaks to your heart? They all have to speak to your heart. John begins his gospel with a complete introduction to who Jesus is. Jesus says to John in Revelation, I am the Alpha 
and the Omega, preeminent all the way to the end. I am the Lamb of God. I am the truth of God. I am the light and the word of God. And I am the visible, demonstrable willingness of God to live with you. I wish I had a moving, thought-provoking illustration with which to close. I don't. All I have is this. If you and Jesus are just casual acquaintances, resolve this year to get to know him better. If you and Jesus are friends, but not best friends, resolve to know him better and to make him a part of your life. If you know the preeminent, powerful, promised, and personal Jesus, resolve to share him with those around you. As God in the tabernacle was at the center of the Hebrews' camp and life, let's at Kings resolve to make Jesus the word, light, and perfect gift, the center of our worship, our lives, and our ministry. Amen.